Well, last week we began a new sermon series titled Questions Jesus Asks. And Jesus asks a lot of questions. And the questions that Jesus asks um, usually drive pretty deep to the soul. Um, last week we, we addressed a question where Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Uh, if you miss a sermon, you can find them on the website. You can even iTunes podcast subscribe there if you like. Um, you can listen if you miss one. But today our sermon reflects on a question that Jesus asked some people who were in a crowd who came up to him. And essentially he asked, do you think they, these, these people who died in this horrible accident, do you, do you think they are more sinful than you? See, our tendency as human beings is to, is to judge others and evaluate their lives. And Jesus no, uh, turns attention instead and says, no, evaluate your own life. Recognize your own great need. This is uh, easier said than done, isn't it? Let us look at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it, also this year, uh, let it, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for your insight. We pray for your spiritual guidance as we tackle this challenging, difficult text, but also a text that really does something spectacular to those who receive it in faith. Drive us closer to you. We ask that in this very hour because you're good and gracious and patient and kind. And we ask through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Could you imagine surviving a plane crash? Could you imagine surviving two plane crashes in your life? Austin Hatch doesn't need to imagine. He's done that. Austin Hatch, when he was young, about eight years old, he was flying. His father was a pilot, and they, he and his whole family were flying on a trip, and the plane crashed. Everyone except... His father and himself perished in the accident. And then in 2011, just, just nine days after he wrote a letter of intent to play college basketball at the University of Michigan while flying on his plane with his father again, the plane crashes, this time killing his father and leaving him 
all alone. Everyone in his family has perished in two plane accidents. He was left in a medically induced coma. When you hear stories like this, a lot of questions pop into your mind, like how on earth did this happen, and who in their right mind would get back in the plane with their father? How come Austin lived and and everyone else perished? Where is God in in all this? You know, the disasters, they change. The questions remain the same, whether it's 9-11 or tsunamis in Indonesia or in the Philippines or Malaysian airlines disappearing over oceans. The questions remain, who's to blame? How could it happen? Why on earth would God allow this to, have, to take place? In our passage today, men approach Jesus from this very large crowd, and they tell him some breaking news that has just happened in Jerusalem. There's, there's no Twitter back then, you know, or no CNN updates on your smartphone. And, and so they came forward through the crowd, and they said that an untold number of men had been brutally murdered by Roman soldiers while they were worshiping in the temple. And we don't know all the words that were exchanged, but uh, surely something along the lines of what did they do to deserve this? Or, or, or surely they must have been sinful in order for God to allow such events to happen to them. You see, belief in Jesus' day, and one that was certainly um, uh, proposed by the, the hyper-religious Pharisees at that time, was that, was that calamity was punishment from God for sin. These Galileans then must have been quite sinful for God to to take their lives in such judgment. Now, today people really don't think this way. Hardly anyone believes that God's judgment comes to people who die in plane crashes or tsunamis. The view that moderns have is that people really aren't all that sinful, at least not in a sort of biblical sort of way. Or that certainly God never judges anyone. He loves everyone for crying out loud. And if you talk about such things, well, I'm going to lump you in that category of religious fanatic or wacko. And yet, isn't it true that many people who feel the same way also hold on to some notion of some sort of karma in the universe, right? Or some sort of pay-it-forward reality where, where, where if you do something bad, it, the, the universe knows and eventually it's going to come back and pay you back someday. And even Christians can live with this misguided understanding. Though few would admit it, most live or believe as if they live a good, clean, moral life that God will keep them out of trouble. After all, they've been good and they deserve to have a simple, clean, happy life. But then many a Christian family has had a crisis of faith because there's a a mom or a dad or a spouse or a child who dies. Christians can start saying, how could God allow this to happen to me? Which is code for, I'm not like those Galileans. I've been good. Now Jesus countered these men with words that should shock us to this day. Did you pick up on it? He essentially says, do you think that they are more sinful than you? And then he says, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Ouch. Did Jesus really say that? What Jesus is saying to them, and what we are to understand today is this, we must repent or we will perish. 
you know, I can't really couch it in other terms. I can't soften the wording. Those are his words. Imagine how the original news bearers must have responded when they brought Jesus this news. <laughs> wow, Jesus, we're just trying to let you know what happened in Jerusalem. You don't have to go all medieval on us, you know? All this fire and brimstone. Jesus has a teaching for them and a teaching for us. Jesus says, when you hear of atrocities, when you hear of calamities, stop trying to figure out what's wrong with the victims and focus on your own condition. See, Jesus knows that we human beings don't naturally think about our own mortality. We don't naturally think about what happens with us after we die. We don't naturally consider ourselves as sinners and deserving of God's judgment. And so we do not naturally see ourselves in need of repentance and trusting in Christ. But this morning we're going to study that. We'll, hopefully we'll see what Jesus is trying to get across Hopefully these words will become more clear. Hopefully we'll understand that, the, that there is actually a joy that comes with repentance. And hopefully we'll see that now is the time to turn, if you haven't already, and, and trust in this amazing God of grace and receive his mercy and his kindness to all those who turn to him in faith. We're going to divide our time in two areas because this, this passage is divided into verses 1 through 5, which is where we see the encounter. And then we have the parable in verses 6 through 9. The encounter and then the parable. And here's what Jesus, the big idea of this verses 1 through 5, this encounter is this. Um, There's a universal need of repentance. Every human being needs repentance. Now, there's very few things that we can say all of humanity needs. What are they? We need food, can't go 30 days without food. We need water, we can't go uh, three days without water. We need oxygen, we can't go three minutes without oxygen. We also need shelter, right? It gets kind of cold and also get kind of hot. Sociologists throw in, we, all human beings need love. We can do that, let's throw that in there. But there's really not a whole lot of things that we can say every single human being needs. Jesus here in this passage alerts us to another universal need of humanity, and that is repentance. What is repentance? Christian theologian Louis Burkhoff helps us. He he shows us that there's three elements of repentance. First is an intellectual element. This is a, a change of view. A recognition of sin is involving personal guilt and defilement and helplessness. It's what Paul refers to as a, a knowledge of sin. Before you can turn from your sin towards God, you need to actually know it exists, right? Um, and so that's the intellectual element. There's also an emotional element. There, there must come a change of feeling, manifesting itself in feelings of sorrow, um, for sin, that, that you've committed something against a, a God who is loving and kind and gracious and, and merciful. Um, emotional sorrow must be more than what the Bible calls earthly sorrow. Earthly sorrow is what many people experience. This is just feeling sorry that you got caught, right? Or feeling sorry that you look bad or feeling sorry for the consequences of something that you've done wrong. Godly sorrow grieves over how your actions have actually offended a holy, loving, and good God. There's an emotional element. Lastly, there's a volitional element. Here the sinner embraces a change of purpose. There's an inward turning away from from sin, coupled with a a new disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. And so to repent then 
Uh, the Hebrew word really means to turn or return. Um, to repent then means to, to take a U-turn, so to speak, on the road of life, to turn from chasing after selfish, self-motivated, uh, self-kingdom ideas and living and turning towards the God who created all things and to whom our lives are due allegiance. And so what Jesus shows us here in these first five verses is that every human being, except for him, is in need of repentance. Now, in this encounter, these men, they bust through the crowd, like I said, with the latest news from Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate, uh, soldiers, had just killed, who knows how many people, uh, Galileans, who were worshiping. Uh, They were offering up sacrifices, and their blood got mixed with uh, the blood of their sacrifice. Kind of a gruesome scene. Now, without getting too historical on you, this is right up Pontius Pilate's alley. This is in fitting with his personality. You can read ancient accounts from Josephus, a, a Hebrew historian, but um, Pontius Pilate was the, the, the ruler in the local area of Jerusalem. He was the prefect. He served under uh, Tiberius, and he was um, a brutal man. And he looked upon the Galileans with disdain. And, and it's true, the, the Galileans had a reputation for being troublemakers. They're, they're, they're the ones who rode the Harleys and had the tattoos and kept making loud noise riding through town late at night. All right? Maybe not, but you get the idea. They had a reputation for being the ones who wanted to rise up with insurrection. Now, we don't know all that had taken place prior to Jesus opening his mouth. They were probably saying, Jesus, what are we to make of this? Like I said, what, what, what is this all about? You know, what did they do wrong uh, that God would judge them in this way? As I mentioned, that's kind of what the Jewish culture believed, that, that calamity was a payment for, for sin. But Jesus requires, re- replies with questions. He answered them in verse 2. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think that? And then Jesus answers his own question in verse 3. In the Greek, it's emphatic. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then in verse 4, did you see? Jesus offers up his own example, right? The first one was an atrocity. This is human beings killing other human beings. The next one is a calamity. It's called a so-called act of God. A tower falls over uh, in Siloam. Siloam was a part of, of Jerusalem as a community within, within the city. In verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed him. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus takes the story of the Galileans and the story of another tragic event in Siloam, and he uses it to make a point. Do you think they are worse than you? Do you really think so? And he actually uses two different words. The first time he says, do you think they were worse sinners? The second time he says, do you think they were worse offenders? They're different words in the Greek. The word in the Greek really means someone who has a bad character, one who has sinned against others or sinned against God. Uh, The word translated offenders is, is most often translated a debtor, someone who owes a debt to somebody else. Jesus is challenging them and us with our understanding of of sin and the debt that we owe. According to Jesus, every human being is a sinner, is guilty, and has a debt they owe God, which they must be accountable for. But you see what these guys wanted to do? They wanted to to, um, argue with Jesus about varying degrees of sin. 
which is kind of how we are. We'd like to like look around at people other around us and we go, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so, the axe murderer, right? Um, they want to, do, to argue about degrees of sin, but Jesus forced them to look at the universality of sin. doesn't matter the degree, it is shared by every human being. Everyone, says Jesus, is a sinner. Now, and so Jesus says, he says, don't use these tragedies as um, a means by which you can judge others. No, instead, turn your attention towards yourself. He's saying we all need to repent. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, is, and you will likewise perish. Now, is Jesus saying that, you know, if you don't repent, you're going to have a tower fall on you? No, that's not what he's getting at here. You're going to, you know, go to church someday and, and Pontius Pilate's going to show up? No, that's not what he's getting at here. Um, Every person will die physically. What, what Jesus is talking about, though, is what the Bible talks about is the, is the second death. That there's a, everybody will one day die. Uh, and as Hebrew says, it's appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Everyone will stand before God and give an account for our lives. And people who haven't repented in this lifetime and received the mercy and grace of God will experience what Jesus calls the, the second death. Jesus speaks about it elsewhere. He says that those who are against him don't repent. They enter into, are cast away in a place of utter darkness, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And and that's what the perishing that Jesus is speaking of here. You know, this is hard. This is not an easy subject to broach. Um, I've preached a number of times before on on judgment and justice and and really how, um, you know, how God is a God of justice, and we want him to be that way. Uh, I'm not going to go into all those details. If, you, if, you, if you're unclear on that, there's a couple good books on the book table. The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. C.S. Lewis has an amazing book, Mere Christianity. I read that before coming to faith in Christ because I struggled with that. How can, how, can, how, can, how can God send people away from him forever and ever? Ultimately, though, we cry out for justice all the time. We cry out for, as Adriana prayed today, we cried out for cures, for, for things that take the lives of millions of people. Are we saying that God can't too cry out for justice and bring justice? I'm not going to say much more than that, but I will quote a few things from C.S. Lewis with regards to this. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, sin is man saying to God throughout his life, go away, leave me alone. Hell is simply saying to the man, you may have your wish. Or as he says elsewhere, hell is locked from the inside. He also says, it writes in his book, The Great Divorce, he says, there are only two kinds of people in, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. My friends, the need for repentance is universal. We're all guilty of not loving others um, as we love ourselves. We're all guilty of not loving God and living for him and for his glory. Repentance takes ownership of this reality in our own lives. And it issues in us a desire to to make a U-turn on the road of life and to turn back to God and seek his mercy and his grace. The question before us here then is, have you done that? Have you experienced that in your life? That's the encounter. Now for the parable. 
the parable is seen in verses 6 to 9. And Jesus tells this parable because it has something to do with what just took place, right? Uh, and in this parable, we see three things. We see the urgency, the patience, and the fruit of repentance. But first, the parable. So we see this man plants a fig tree in a vineyard. Do you know why he plants a fig tree in a vineyard? Do you know why? I don't know. <laughs> One commentator said um, fig trees were, are planted in vineyards um, because it's helpful to the vineyard. But then it doesn't go on to explain why. I don't know why. Maybe having a fig tree there with fruit on it is helpful for the workers when they get hungry. They don't have to run out to McDonald's. They've got fig tree right there. Right? I don't know. I'm just guessing. All right. So he plants his fig tree. And he comes to see if any fruit's been produced. And he's not finding any. And so he says to the vine dresser, that's the, the, the man responsible for caring for everything, he says, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? See, the fig tree had enough years to produce fruit. See, a fig tree takes three years to mature to the point where it can produce fruit. And so that's most likely already taken place after three years. Now the man's come by for another three years trying to find fruit. It's a six-year-old fig tree. That's, that's pretty many years in the life of a fig tree. And there's no fruit whatsoever on this fig tree. Something is wrong with the fig tree. And the owner wants it cut down. But you see the vine dresser. He says, give it one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put manure on it and fertilize it. In other words, I'll do everything possible to give it a chance to bear fruit. And if it does, great. If it doesn't, cut it down. What is this parable meant to teach? Well, the fig tree is Israel. All throughout the Old Testament, God has likened and used the illustration of fig trees and vineyards to describe Israel. Sometimes uses fig trees and vineyards in the same sentence to describe Israel. Israel was to be healthy and fruitful like a fig tree. She was to prosper and thrive. She was to honor God and love it, uh, her neighbor. She was to bring this message of, of uh, hope and restoration to the world. Yet Israel failed miserably. There was no fruit on the fig tree. In the parable, the man who planted the fig tree is God. The vine dresser is Jesus. For three years, he's been ministering among Israel. And for all his efforts, the people thought he really was just spreading manure. He's been seeking fruit on the fig trees, but there is none. Shall I cut it down? It's wasting precious soil. No, I'll give it one more year. If it's fruitful... Well, good. If not, then cut it down. This parable teaches us the urgency of a repentance. There's an urgency to our need to repent. Do not tarry. Do not delay. Do not think that tomorrow will be a better day. Because in 365 tomorrows, it may be too late. As we just sang in, the, in our hymn earlier, we sang, do not tarry till you're Till you're better, you will never come at all. The 18 people in Siloam, none of them woke up that morning thinking this day will be their last. 
those worshipers who went in to worship God in, in church, they were, they were slotted in church. None of them woke up thinking that morning was going to be the one. And for all of us here in the sanctuary, none of us is really thinking right now that tomorrow may be the day. Chances are it's not going to be, all right? But Jesus' point, though, is this, that every time on News 12 you hear of the woman who got ran over by the snowplow, Every time someone mentions a story about a boy surviving two plane crashes, we must think, I too will one day meet my maker. I must prepare myself. I cannot tarry. I must be ready. There, Jesus shows us there's an urgency to repentance. It's no, nothing to put off. This parable also teaches us, though, of the patience of God. Did you see that? Three years in a row, no fruit. If that fig tree was a government employee, even he would be fired by now, right? This is one unfruitful fig tree. Sorry to all the government employees. Dang. All right. Though God is a God of, of justice and judgment, he is first and foremost a God of love and patience. And his love and his patience triumphs. The Apostle Paul writes, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Some Christians need to appropriate that, especially in the ways in which Christians sometimes do evangelism. Sometimes there's a lot of yelling, a lot of anger, a lot of standing on soapboxes and demeaning people. We don't see that in Jesus here, do we? That's not God's character. God is patient, kind. It's kindness that leads to repentance. But here is what we need to understand. You must not mistake God's patience for his approval. God has a brought your life to an end just yet. But don't mistake him for approving of how you're living your life. You know, the full quote that I just read from Paul um, goes like this. You see, there was this problem that he was dealing with in Romans chapter 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Are you presuming on the riches of God's grace and the fact that he's been kind and patient with you for the fact that he really approves of what you're doing? No, don't do that. But rather use this time of seeming approval to repent. God is patient with us. His mercy is ever-present for us to receive. If you have yet to trust in Christ... Use this time now to trust in him and repent and come to him. Billy Graham once said, The wonderful news is that our Lord is a God of mercy, and he responds to repentance. The last point of the parable alludes to the the fruit of repentance. Grandma Burnett, I just called her nanny. That was my grandma on my mom's side. She had this wonderful house, wonderful garden, this nice big porch on the back of her house. And all around it were these fully mature, beautiful rhododendron bushes. 
these rhododendrons, I know some rhododendrons lose their leaves, but this, hers was the type that held the leaves all year round, these big, dark green, waxy leaves that fan out. You know what I'm talking about? We don't get a whole lot of rhododendrons up here. Maybe some of you will plant some this spring. Um, rhododendron is a beautiful plant, but the fruit of the rhododendron is its flowers. And when they come into bloom, there's no other flowering plant that's more beautiful than a rhododendron. In much the same way that a rhododendron bears a, a gorgeous, aromatic, flowering fruit that is a sight to behold, so too is repentance. Repentance produces a fruit in the believer's life that is a delight to experience and to behold. Now, that's not what people often think. People often have this misconception about repentance that it's, that it's dreary. That, like in repentance, God has given you some sort of time out where you don't have access to your, to your iPad or something. Or, or, or it's like getting the hairs on your back waxed, right? You know, really painful and really not for your benefit, just other people, right? All right, that was pretty gross. But that's what people think repentance is, some sort of dreary, painful thing that's, that really doesn't produce anything good for you. That's because I think perhaps they've got repentance confused with Penance. Penance is a creation of the Roman Catholic Church which commands people to work off their guilt and shame by repeating prayers or chants or doing so-called good works to, to pay off whatever sins were committed. But I hope you see penance is useless. You cannot pay off your sins by overcoming and doing something good to make up for them. If that were true, Jesus never would have gone and needed to go to the cross. Frederica Matthews Green says this, God is not looking for repayment, but repentance. You know, not only is penance useless, it actually hinders fruitfulness. Why? Because it keeps your focus on yourself, on what you are doing, instead of putting your focus on Christ and what he has already done and continues to do for you. The first fruit of repentance is, is faith. I know I've talked about this before, but conversion, that is um, coming, to, uh, coming into God's kingdom, is like a, a two-sided coin. On one side is repentance, and on the other is faith. Both of these take place when you come to Christ and experience salvation. Jesus' first words that he preached were, Repent and believe the good news. When you generally repent, you see your great need and your helplessness, and it causes you to look to Christ, who is your only solution, and look to him in faith. The first fruit of repentance is faith. And, and, and when you come to believe, it's like a flower blooming. The very best day of my life, it was about 20 years ago, when after wrestling with all these questions about God and who is Christ and all this and that, the important things that you do as you, as you investigate and come to faith in Christ, I, there was a day when I got on my knees and I repented and I turned in faith to Christ. Yeah, there was some sorrow, there was real sin to grieve over in my life, but let me tell you, there was great joy 
when I saw the only one, the only thing that could satisfy my need, God provided. Great joy and delight. Repentance is not dreary. It's good. It's beautiful. Another fruit of repentance is a gospel-centered life. Christian, understand this. You're not only saved by grace, you live by grace. Which means repentance isn't just something that you do one day in the past. It's something that's a part of our ongoing lives in the present. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. (laughs) Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's to be an ongoing life in the believer's life. You see, that first time you repent and you trust in Christ, that's the day you enter into the kingdom, the kingdom which has come. But there's a, there's a day yet to come when everything is made right, when, when all that is wrong is purged from this world and God brings heaven to earth. That day is coming. And in between those days, we live in the already not yet, and we still grieve over the sins that we have in our lives. Thankfully, as we understand in Scripture, God has given us a high priest. Jesus Christ, who's gone through the heavens, and he intercedes for us, applying to us his abundant forgiveness each and every day. And so it's important for us to be a people of repentance, to to, to recognize that until Christ returns, I and you are going to be people who, yeah, make mistakes. More than that, willfully do things we know we shouldn't do or not do. It's just part of the old man, the old woman that still resides in us. But Christ continues to intercede. And so when we repent, we come back to the cross. And the cross reminds us that Jesus has accomplished it all. And it changes how we live. Our lives are become beautiful and fruitful. Because as we receive forgiveness each and every day, we were able to offer it to others. You know, a sure sign that you lack repentance regularly in your lives is what? A critical spirit. Always finding faults, something wrong with this or that. You could even couch it in biblical terms to make it sound really righteous. Really, it's just a critical spirit. It comes from an unrepentant heart. What we need is to be brought back to the cross, to be reminded each and every day of the mercy that we need, that we continue to be sinners until Christ returns. We're utterly dependent upon his grace. And when that is pressed into our lives, Grace Church, we become a fruitful place, a place that is welcoming, a place that isn't critical or demeaning, but rather a place that is long-suffering and patient, just as God has been patient with us. Tell me, that is that not like a flower or a rhododendron? I mean, it's a beautiful thing. Maybe some of you need to repent of being just critical, always finding something wrong. And laying that at Christ's feet. Maybe, maybe do that before you come to receive the Lord's Supper. Thomas Carlyle once said, of all the acts of man, repentance is the most divine. The greatest of all faults is to be conscious of none.
the last fruit of repentance I'll mention is good works. John the Baptist cried out to all who came out to him, preparing the way to the Lord, said, Be fruitful, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. My friends, repentance gives us new birth, gives us new life. The Holy Spirit takes up residency in every believer. And because the Spirit of God dwells in the children of God, we are now actually able to do good works, works that actually honor God, build the kingdom and his church, and and works that really flow from a motivation of grace. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15 when he says, I'm the true vine and my father's a vine dresser. He reverses the roles here, which is fine. He can do that. He's the Lord. All right. And he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, not, that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. This is from John chapter 15. Already you are clean because of the words I've spoken to you. All right. Abide in me. He's like, you've received my salvation, disciples. But just abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, guess what? You can do nothing. My friends, Repentance and faith brings us into a vital union with the life-giving Son of God. All that he has as we abide in him becomes ours by faith. I I don't know exactly how. It's mystical, right? But yet it's no less true. If you belong to Christ, you've been united to him. His, His life flows to us, his power, his glory, his wisdom, his obedience, his grace. It, it flows to all who have been given new life in Christ. And so what is our role? What are we to do? Abide. <laughs> Remain. Stay with him. Don't chase after anything else to abide in. See him as our greatest hope, as our, as our greatest healer, as our greatest shepherd. We are to see the futility of going to anyone other than Christ for our sustenance, for our life, for our meaning, for our purpose. And so we stay with him. We pray to him. We follow him. We listen to him. And we're led by him. And because we're abiding in him, flowers blossom. We produce fruit. Or better yet, he produces fruit. In us. I know it's been a kind of a tough passage this morning. I, if you're still struggling with some things, you want to talk about it, come see me. I'm more than happy to sit down and try to, as best I can, to address any concerns or questions that, that you may have. But what we've seen this morning is Jesus is teaching us that the tragedies we see around us are not an opportunity for judging and figuring out what's wrong with somebody else or what went wrong with the world, but rather it's an opportunity to look inside and see what's wrong with us and see our need of repentance and to see that Jesus offers forgiveness for that. You know, it really should astound us of what God has done for us. One person who was astounded by all this and is astounded is Bono, the lead singer of U2. I've got a a book um, called Bono in conversation with Michka Asayas. Um, I think you can still get it on Amazon or not, but um, I'm going to read a short excerpt from it, and we'll end with that. And so 
Asias is a French reporter who's known Bono since like when the band was started, right? Everyone likes like to go. I used to listen to you two, like you know, b before uh, you know, before Joshua Tree or whatever, you know, try to say uh, yeah how cool we are. But this guy goes all the way back. But he's not he's not a believer in Jesus Christ, and yet Bono has a strong relationship with him, and he interviews him. Now the interview took place just days after the Madrid train bombing in 2004. 191 people were killed. 1,800 people were maimed and suffered. And he brings, Bono speaks of how, since this world is governed by laws, physical laws and moral spiritual laws, that we should expect payment. He calls it karma, right? That there is sort of a karma in the universe that justice will come. But he says there's also this thing called grace. So here we go. Asias says... I think I'm beginning to understand religion because I've started acting and thinking like a father. What do you make of that? Bono. Yes, I think that's normal. It's a mind-blowing concept that God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. But the thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. Messiah, I haven't heard you talk about that. Bono. I really believe we've moved out of the realm of karma into one of grace. Messiah. Well, that doesn't make it any clearer for me. <laughs> Bono. You see, at the center of all religions is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet, along comes this idea called grace to upend all that as you sow you shall reap stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Messiah, I'd be interested to hear that. Bono, that's between me and God. <laughs> He goes on to say, though, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep, you know what? It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am, and I hope I don't have to depend upon my own religiosity. Esaias. The son of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wish I could believe that. Bono. But I love the idea of the sacrificial lamb. I love the idea that God says, look, you Cretans, <laughs> there are certain results to the way we are, to selfishness. And there's a, more, there's a, a mortality as part of your very nature. And let's face it, you're not living a very good life, are you? There are consequences to actions. The point of the death of Christ is that Christ took on the sins of the world so that, so that what we put out did not come back to us and that our sinful nature does not reap the obvious death. That's the point. It should keep us humble. It's not our good works that gets us through the gates of heaven. God is a loving God, 
and his response to all the sin that is in the world, through which there are rigid laws, physically and morally, in the universe, his response is to break through with grace. God's response is Christ. Jesus is the intrusion of God's grace into a world full of karma, a a world full of you get what you deserve. The question is, have you or will you turn to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are patient, patient with this world, patient with us. Oh, how foolish we are to to think that your patience means approval. We thank you that you fill us with your spirit to give us eyes to see not just our, our sin and our need of repentance, but really the intrusion of grace through Jesus Christ into this world, the one in whom we can be forgiven and restored and brought back to you. I pray that this truth would give us great joy this morning. I pray for those who have yet to turn and trust in Christ, that they would see their need right now and come and believe. And for those who have, I'd see that, I pray that we would see our ongoing need of repentance as the people of God, that we may bear fruit for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.